Amen. Today's scripture reading is coming out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And our weekly Bible reading plan that our church has been engaging in over the past several months since the beginning of the year, we recently read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and it is, I think, the perhaps most significant chapter that we need to turn to to understand the resurrection and what it means. So we're going to cover that today, reading just a portion out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a portion, in fact, that we just sang. Starting in verse 54, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the church in Corinth some 2,000 years ago, said this, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. What a great day to be together to celebrate on Easter Sunday the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We have seen that on full display through Nathan's baptism. We've sung about it these last several songs, and now we turn to God's Word, and we ask Him to come and speak to us through it. So would you pray with me? Father God, you are a good God, a good Father to us. You've given us so many blessings that we could not count them all, but we know we're blessed, we know you're good, and we know that we owe you our worship. We owe you our lives, and so we come to you today asking that you would help us to turn over any part of our life that we've been hanging on to. Perhaps for some of us, that's a life of fear, fearing exactly what Jesus came to conquer, which is death itself. Father God, through your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our minds to understand the significance of your son Jesus' resurrection. Soften our hearts so we might see that he did that out of love for us, sinners like me. And God, prepare our hands and our feet to leave from this place, ready to take what you have shown us and live it out in our lives, even today. This is what we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, if I could put it in a sentence, it would go like this, and this will form the entirety of today's message. Because the resurrection is real, that's the first point, it has implications for then and there, talking about eternity, that's the second point, point. and the third is 
because I'm a Baptist preacher, and you got to have three points to every sermon. If you didn't know that, now you know. And the third point is it has implications for then and there as well as here and now. Let's take the first one. Because the resurrection is real. So one of the things that makes Christianity stand out among all world religions is rooted in history. It's rooted in a time and place. And we see that showing up at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. So the Apostle Paul writing, he's writing to a church he is well familiar with, a church in a city called Corinth. In that church in the city of Corinth, they had some struggles, to say the least. Go read the letter. <laughs> Not just a few. One of them is that they were doubting the resurrection of Jesus. They didn't see the implications for the resurrection in their lives. They figured, you know, he was a good teacher. He was a wonderful person. He was a savior. We even, we, we, we even believe that. But we don't really need to go into this resurrection business. It seems, I don't know why. Maybe today someone say, well, it seems a little superstitious. Who's to say people can come back from the dead? That's miraculous. You can't prove that. You can't, you can't define that in some way in a lab. You can't, you, can't, you know, without, any, without uh, any doubt at all, make, you know, make that claim provable in any sense. Paul says, the resurrection of Jesus is the center of our faith. We have no faith without it. And he goes on to show them that their doubts, though he hears them, are in some way unfounded. What does he say? He says this. I'm going to remind you about the gospel that I preached to you. This is, gospel literally means good news. I'm going to remind you about the good news. In verse 3, he says, this good news I, I received. I didn't make this up is what he's saying. It was given to me. I pass it on to you as of first importance. This is the most important thing you need to know. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of what? And then he goes on to say in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, the good news is this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, which is another name for Peter, if you've heard of him before. And then to the 12. The 12 was an official name for the 12 disciples, even though they were missing one in Judas. It was still kind of like their nickname for that group. That's why it's capitalized in some of your Bibles. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the rest of the 12 disciples. After that, he appeared more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is another way of saying they have passed on, they have died. Then he appeared to James. James would have been Jesus' half-brother. They shared the same mother, Mary, but they did not share the same father. James's father was an earthly father, Joseph. Jesus' father was his heavenly father, God in heaven. So then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me as one most abnormally born. Jesus appeared to Paul after Jesus had already ascended into heaven. Now what's he saying here? He's saying our faith is not rooted in superstition. It's not rooted in hearsay. It's rooted in history. That this took place. In this world. And he gives two reasons to prove it. The first one he says a couple times. He says, as scripture says. Scripture prophesied. Before we ever got to Jesus, 
Old Testament prophets have been saying there's going to be one who comes. We don't have time to get into all that. I wish we could. But if you just look at Isaiah 53, you will find in Isaiah 53 a clear description of the death of one who was innocent, who died for the sins of others. You'll find in, in uh, Isaiah 53 one who died without descendants. And you'll find one who died and yet rose again. And Isaiah says he will enjoy a long life and he will prosper. He will see descendants. What is Isaiah saying? He's saying he's dead, but now he's alive. He's talking about resurrection. He had no children and now he has children. He's talking about those who would follow Jesus after his resurrection. What's he saying is that this thing that happened, we were told about beforehand. And if someone could consistently predict the future, I don't know about you, but if someone could really do that, I would tend to believe them. If they've got a good track record, I would be pretty impressed by that, and I would think they seem to know what they're talking about. If they're giving out lotto numbers, I might be tempted to write them down. Not that I play the lotto, y'all, but I'm just saying I'm just saying, if they were good at predicting the future, that would tell me something. And, and you know what Paul's saying? He's saying, they predicted this. You can trust that Jesus was resurrected because we were told this way before it happened. But he gives another reason. He says, people saw it, y'all. I saw it, Paul. Met him on the road to Damascus. I'm a person who's persecuting the church, making sure Christians are going to jail. Some even killed for their faith. And Jesus appeared to me. And I'm last in a long line of people Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. And he says, oh, by the way, they're still living. Why does he say that? Because he's saying, there's the receipt. Go and ask him. You don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. Go and ask all those people he appeared to if he rose from the dead. Do you think he was able to trick 500 plus people? Now, some might say, well, sure, that you, can, you can do that. I don't think you can do that, but you might think that. Well, who would you fool in your family? Who could you convince in your family that you are God in the flesh? Could you, could you, you say, well, I got a few gullible cousins. But, but no, seriously. Seriously, could you really convince anyone in your family that you were God in the flesh? I couldn't. They know me too well. I'm like, God, God, if God's showing up, he's going to be better than this. But what's he say? He says, James, Jesus' half-brother. The G Jesus grew up with James. James saw him eyeball, eyeball to eyeball. And you know what? James doubted that Jesus was who he said he was. When, until when? Until he saw him post-resurrection. We have stories in the New Testament where, where Jesus' family would go to him and say, This is crazy. What you're doing is insane. You need to cut this out. Just come back with us. His brothers doubted. His mother questioned is this really what God wants you to do? How did they come to believe? How did James, his half-brother, come to believe the resurrection? I, I, would, I would doubt it, except he rose again. So the first part of 1 Corinthians 15 that I think is worth pointing out is that the resurrection really did happen. We have a historical document right in front of us called the New Testament. 
filled with people who wrote soon after the resurrection. And now you've got Paul saying there's lots of witnesses. They're still alive. You can all go ask them. Even one of them was his half-brother. It really did happen. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just end with, it's real, so cut this stuff out. Quit telling people it's not happening. He moves on. He says, not only is it real, because the resurrection is real, point one. Point two, it has implications for then and there. In other words, it has eternal implications. Paul will go on in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 12. He'll say, if it is preached that Christ has, been has not been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? We're talking about it. We're telling you about it. How could you say it didn't happen? Verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If you don't believe in the resurrection, your faith is useless. It means nothing for eternity. All those who believed and died are dead without hope, is what he says. He's, he ends this little section trying to show them that faith in Jesus without a belief in the resurrection is worthless by saying, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. He's saying if Christ had not been raised, there is no hope for then and there. There is no hope for eternal life. If Jesus couldn't beat back sin and its results, death, then what hope do we have? Imperfect souls as we are. He's the only one that was perfect among us, and he couldn't beat sin and death. If he couldn't beat it, we are without hope. And if that didn't happen, you know what that does? It makes Jesus, it makes Jesus a liar. How so? Because Jesus said to his disciples in John 10, he said, in verse 27, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What Jesus is saying is I'm promising you, if you follow me, eternal life. Now, how could one who dies offer eternal life? How could one who dies say that they are the, equal to God, the author of life? How is that possible? If Jesus is not resurrected, then Jesus was lying throughout his whole ministry. And it has absolutely no implications for our eternal life. What hope do we have for eternal life if the perfect one, the Son of God, was beaten by death? If Christ did not rise, simply put, he would have been a liar. But he did predict his death. And he did predict his resurrection. We find the evidence of that throughout the New Testament, particularly through the Gospels. Mark 8, 31, Matthew 17, 22, Luke 9, 22. Jesus is predicting his death, predicting his resurrection. And so Paul says, without the resurrection, we have no hope. But 
Turning back over to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised, risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. What is he communicating here? He's saying because Jesus was resurrected, there is resurrection for us. That physical death in this world is not the end for us. In many ways, it's just, as C.S. Lewis would say, it's just the close of the preface before the first chapter of life really begins. That's all death is. Because Jesus did rise, it proves that he did conquer death, that he paid for sins. And that tells us that we have access to that as well. The eternal life that Jesus has, he gives to us. He bought our ticket for us. How do we have that eternal life? The scriptures tell us over and over again, the way you receive that eternal life, the way you have hope for the future, for eternity, is simply trusting in Jesus. He is who he said he was. He did what he said he did. And he is alive now, even now, sitting next to the Father, interceding for you and me. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. So, because Jesus' resurrection really did happen, it has implications for our eternity. But one of the powerful things about 1 Corinthians 15 is the Apostle Paul points out it also has implications for our life here and now. It has implications for life eternal. We no longer have to fear death. We have hope for a future that's better than the past. We have something to look forward to in eternity, better than we could ever imagine. Jesus' resurrection secured all that for us. But it also makes life meaningful here and now. It's not just about then and there. It's also about here and now. Because Jesus' resurrection is real... It has implications for then and there, eternity, but it also has implications for here and now, life in this present world. And I don't know about you, but when I first really studied 1 Corinthians 15, I was kind of surprised Paul took that turn. You may say, well, where does that take place? It takes place at the end of this chapter. Look at verse 58. Paul has walked through what the gospel is. It's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He's talked about the eternal implications of that, that there, there is a heaven before us that is secured for us. We, a whole section we skipped over, he talks about Jesus' return and the defeat of death once and for all and evil. He's talked about when resurrection takes place, that our bodies will be fit for heaven. He says, given all of that, you would think he would say, so just coast. Just sit back and relax these last few years you've got on earth. How many every years you got? It's not much. Let's be honest. You make it to 80 or 90, that's, that's still not a lot in light of eternity. Just relax. Take a break. You've got your vacation planned at the end of life and eternity way ahead of you. Don't, don't worry about it. Just relax. Paul doesn't say that. He says, because 
That's your future. Your life here and now matters. He says in verse 58, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. He's talking about here and now. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. He's talking about here and now. Why? Because you know that your labor here and now in the Lord is not in vain. And I've wrestled trying to understand that, okay? I mean, all that, all that really matters is just eternity, right? That's all that matters. We just get out of this world, you know, just try to suffer through best we can, and then we just look forward to eternity. That's, all, that's, that's what we're doing, right? Paul says no. No, because you've got that future, what you do here and now counts for something. And, and then it, it just kind of hit me. I was like, well, that's the story of Jesus. What Jesus did 2,000 years ago, it mattered then. It matters now. It matters for an eternity. And in some way, the fact that, that I'm following him, my life is now found in him. Somehow what I do here and now, raising my children, within my marriage, within the ministry of the church, within my friendships, Somehow all of this gets counted for an eternity. My sins are wiped clean. Don't misunderstand me. That's taken care of. But, but something about the way that I live here and now matters for an eternity. Paul says, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. He says that in light of all he has said about resurrection. Because you know what? When your life is over, it's not over. When you die, you are not dead. When your body goes in the ground, your soul is with the Lord. And one day, Paul says, you will be reunited to that body. And that body will be fit for heaven. You are an eternal being created in the image of God, meant to last forever. And so what you do now matters now, and it matters then, and it will matter forever. Your life matters. It matters for an eternity. So stand firm, Paul says. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. But you may say, yeah, but I haven't been doing that. I've been living for me. Or I've been living for my work. Or I've been living for someone else. But, but I have not been living for the Lord. Let me tell you, if, if that's your story, let me let you in on a little secret. That's all our stories. In that way, you're not unique. You're a sinner marred by sin just as I am. You are in need of grace just as I am. And every person in here who has received Jesus, they knew they needed him. Just as maybe God may be revealing to you, perhaps for the first time, that you need him too. There is no eternal life with God without him. There is no this life matters for an eternity without him. So as the scriptures show us again and again, the way into that life is by simply saying, you know what? Jesus is enough. I can't beat sin. I can't beat death. He did. He's enough. I can't be good enough. I make mistakes every day. I, I'm not righteous enough, but he is. I can't get my stuff together. I've, I make mistakes every day, but he didn't. It's by simply trusting that Jesus is enough and you don't have to add anything to it. 
When you come to a place where you realize two things, you're a great sinner, like me, but God has provided for you a great Savior, Jesus. When you see that He is real, His resurrection is real. I pray that you also see that that has implications for your eternity. But it also has something to say about how you live here and now. God is that good that He will not waste any part of your life. But if He is calling you, if He is whispering in your ear, this, this is true, this is for you. I love you. I died for you. Jesus is calling you. Don't miss that. Don't leave here today without saying to God, I am a sinner and I believe. I need a Savior and I trust Jesus. Don't leave without just saying a prayer or something close to that. You know what happens when you do? As soon as you do, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what the scripture tells us. You need nothing else. But faith in Christ to have that eternal future that was the hope of the disciples, is the hope of every Christian. You have that eternal future secured for us. And you also have the promise that your life here and now counts for something that matters. And then you can stand firm, letting nothing move you, giving yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for calling us to a faith that is rooted in truth. We don't have to set aside our thinking in order to believe. And yet it still requires us to trust. Trust in you above ourselves. God, this is something every Christian has to work through every day of their lives, trusting you above themselves. And I pray that we would, but I want to pray specifically for those here this morning who have not yet trusted in you at all. God, that they would see that they are a great sinner, but they have in Jesus a great Savior who is alive today, and your word tells us is even praying for them, interceding for them in prayer, that they matter to your son, Jesus, that they may feel as if the world has forgotten them, but you have not forgotten them. And God, in their heart, they may whisper to you, forgive me. And they may hear from you, I have washed every sin away. Welcome into my family. Your life counts now, it counts forever. I pray every person would leave with that confidence, Father. Because that is what Jesus lived for. It's what he died for. And it's what he rose for, that we may have that confidence. In you, not in ourselves, but in you, that's what we pray, that's what we ask for, that we would leave with that assurance, and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.